looking forward to studying another story within the life of Simon Peter as we continue our Flawed Yet Faithful series. A couple of highlights really, really quick. Last week, we talked about the transfiguration from Matthew 17, where God does something incredible with Jesus. And it involved two, two others that, that, that were from the Old Testament as we know it. And that was, that was Moses and Elijah. And, and this, this, this takes place as it fulfilled the law and, and some prophecy to show that this is now all on Jesus, that he really is the son of God. He's the chosen one. He is the savior you've been waiting for. And how Peter's response to this at first, well, there's a theme, right? Peter's initial response is, is usually pretty good. But then it's when he keeps talking that he gets into trouble, right? So his initial response is, this is a great moment. And then he keeps talking. And, and, and then he has to realize he's missing the, the, the point here. So my hope, obviously, for this series uh, is that it is encouraging to you that as Peter messes up, we recognize we mess up. As Peter make mis makes mistakes, that we would recognize we also make mistakes. We're flawed just like Peter, but we certainly attempt to push through and remain faithful to Jesus because as it turns out, Peter's story is so much like our own. And that's why our series reminder is this. You probably haven't memorized, but don't worry, I won't walk around with a microphone. I'll read it to you once more, okay? Here is our series reminder. The life of Simon Peter proves that while we may fail, fall, doubt, embarrass ourselves, and turn our back on our friends, we can still be restored and remain a faithful follower to the way of Jesus. And so today's story is about what happens before Jesus' crucifixion. So go ahead, you can turn to John 13, but like I said, we'll be hopping around a little bit. We're gonna start in John 13. And as you turn there, let me remind you uh, how a couple of weeks ago when we talked about the disciples and, and Jesus was talking to them in a city called Caesarea Philippi. And in this setting, Peter declared for the first time that Jesus is the true son of God for the first time. That's where he says it. And how that interaction went down and how at first it went well, but then Peter tried to rebuke Jesus, just a fair warning, don't do that. And it just didn't work out for Peter. It wasn't really positive. And so now if you remember though, Peter attempted to rebuke Jesus because Jesus talked about once he would reach Jerusalem, what was going to happen to him? That he was going to suffer. He would be arrested and that he would be put to death. And, and that this was going to happen, but how he would be raised to life. And so Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen. And of course, then Peter rebuked that. They had to have that hard conversation. And days later, the, the transfiguration, it took place on Mount Tabor. And I bring that up because now, just as Jesus prophesied, just as Jesus said, we are heading to Jerusalem. And so this is commonly referred to as Passion Week. We're, we're leading up to it. And the historical implications of this week are obviously significant. And we revisit it every spring on purpose as we celebrate Easter. But Jesus' life has led up to this week. And so now we're gonna take a look at the Last Supper and what follows the Last Supper. And, and unfortunately, how, how Peter's flaws are really magnified 
throughout the story here. So John 13, I'm going to read these first five verses straight through. You'll see it on the screen as well. The Bible says, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Just pausing briefly to say I love the poetry of of John here. Verse 2. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Verse 5. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And so this this sort of ceremonial uh, washing, it was something that these men were quite familiar with. However, here is what is strange. Here's what's different. This was done by servants only, usually. So the fact that Jesus, Jesus, who they have already said, you're the son of God, they already have, have more or less kind of, they're still not fully getting it, but they've more or less gotten, you're him, you're our guy. But the fact that Jesus would, would lower himself, this is totally unheard of, this is unorthodox, that he would wash his disciples' feet. And then Jesus gets to Peter. Here's a few more verses for you. Verse six, he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And that sounds like the Simon Peter we've come to know in this series. He's not angry with Jesus here, but he's not fully understanding what's happening and believing that Jesus is King, Jesus is Savior, he is Lord, he's Messiah, You shouldn't be doing this, Jesus. This is not for you. Uh, The verse continues. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So Jesus is saying, listen, if you don't let me do this, then you are still somehow not getting this. Just just let me do this. You will get it later. And then verse 9. Verse 9. Look at verse 9. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. That's an exclamation point. So I had to say it like that. My hands, my feet, everything, Lord. No, Peter, pump the brakes for a moment. In this case, your feet are enough. No need for all of that. But I appreciate Peter's enthusiasm. But these men, they're all now there. They're kind of kind of confused, that's a theme, obviously, as to what Jesus just did, okay? He, he finishes, puts the towel away, puts the basin away, and all of that. <clears throat> he puts these things away, and then he says, look at verse 12. This is the second part of verse 12, picking up there. Jesus says this, do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do 
as I have done for you. So the question right now in this moment, is this something every Christian should always be doing? You know, should I take this literally, Jesus? I, I don't know about you, but I haven't washed anyone's feet in quite a while. Uh, I think we did at our, our, our wedding. That was more symbolism than anything. But, but Jesus, he's not making this about a literal foot washing that we ought to do all of the time. But he's getting at something much more important because the lesson he is giving his disciples is that in his kingdom, to follow Jesus is to be a servant. And so we can kind of understand Peter's initial response, Lord, no, not you. You're not doing this. You're the Messiah. And Jesus is saying, this is a different kingdom. This is about serving. I have set you an example. Uh, now, I said we're hopping around some gospels. We're going over to Matthew 26. You'll see it on the screen. Over to Matthew's gospel, picking up in verse 20. When evening came, right after the Last Supper, okay? When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. We'll pause right there for a second. Let me go ahead and remind you of something that we talked about in a previous series. In our Meals with Jesus series earlier this year, we talked about the idea of reclining at the table and how this isn't just an interesting phrase, but it is telling us something about the culture of the day. So we've had many artistic expressions of the Last Supper, but none quite as popular as Leonardo da Vinci's that looks like this. And so if you are listening online, you probably have this in your brain already. It is, it is uh, uh, all of the men on one side of the table, all with very light complexions because that's the artistic rendering in this case. But that's not what this looks like. That's not what it looked like. That's not the scene that I want in your, in your mind. That's not how they would have eaten back then. That's not how they would sit. But instead, they were literally reclined, and that would actually look like this in Instead, leaning down, the table is very low to the ground, and they were reclined. Now, after the foot washing, Jesus tells his disciples that one of them will betray him, and they begin to talk amongst themselves. I mean, imagine the Messiah, one of your best friends, right? Your teacher, your Lord. He says, one of you is going to betray me. So they begin to talk amongst themselves and they are upset. You can almost get this picture in your, in your mind of this conversation around the table. There's some added tension. I mean, imagine, I hope this doesn't happen this week, but imagine this week you're in small group and the leader sits down and looks around and says, one of you will betray me. Like, th this is not the same. Okay, I want to make that clear. But imagine, that's chaotic, Right? They've been with Jesus going on three years now. And he says this. There's a lot of chaos, I would imagine, in the moment. And then someone privately asks Jesus a question. Verse 25. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, You have said so. Go do what you're going to do, Judas. Now, for me, as, as, as I studied this week and as I considered really the social aspect of this, I always kind of figured Judas was at the end of the table shouting to Jesus, you don't mean me, right? You know, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, it's you, man. And all the disciples heard it. But 
as, as, as we look at this and as I consider this in my brain, as, as I consider you know, the, how, how, how this looked, I see this more as a private aside because I think had the disciples known, I think they would have attempted to stop this. But nonetheless, Judas gets up and he quietly leaves. And the disciples, they're upset though. And Peter is really adamant about all of this, as he always is. Look at verse 33. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. These other guys may desert you, Jesus, but not me, not the rock. I'm here. I'm immovable. I'm with you. Verse 34. Truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Uh, pause right there. I really believe Peter is completely sincere. He really believes this. I don't think he's, he's lying. I don't think part of him feels conflicted. I think he really is, with his whole heart, believing this. That's, that's just who he is. And this is his teacher, his Lord, his Savior. And he's saying, not me. So the disciples, they finish dinner and they leave singing probably a psalm that is in our Bible. And they make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus, he has eight of them stay in one area. And then he takes the remaining three deeper into the garden. Now, if you've been with us every Sunday, do you have a guess as to who those three he took with him are? We've talked about them constantly, almost. It's Peter, James, and John, or as Jesus incredibly nicknamed them, he's bringing the rock, which gives us a different image I fully understand today, but he's bringing the rock and the sons of thunder. Uh, then Jesus goes a little further, though, and he prays, and he prays an agonizing prayer where he asks God to please figure out another way to do this. Let's, 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 let's do something else here because Jesus does not want to go through the suffering, knowing what he knows is ahead of him. In this moment, he prays honestly and he, and he likens, his, cup, he likens his, his death to a cup and, he's, and he says, I don't want to drink this. If we could go about this another way, let's do that. And he looks over and what are his closest friends doing? He had asked them, will you pray with me? And he looks over, and they are not praying with him, but they had fallen asleep. And, and, and the account shows that this happens a few times. And I'm not going to lie. Listen, I'm not going to hate on these three, all right? If I lay down to pray, I am out. I really am. It doesn't matter how well I slept the night before. I can't, I can't do it. <clears throat> and so that's why part of ministry time is that I stand and I pray for you. Because if I was laying down, that would be awkward, and I would fall asleep. But... Uh, I, I do. I, I just fall asleep very quickly. And I'm in my 30s now. I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, these bones ain't what they used to be, okay? Uh, I can be out like that. Anyway, I digress. But Jesus looks over, and, and of course, and I think he is rightfully so. He's frustrated with him, right? He knows what's coming for him, and while they may not fully get it, he's asked them, come on, one thing, one thing, guys. And Jesus, again, uh, the gospel accounts, he has to do this a couple of times, a few times. He goes over and, and wakes them until Judas enters the Garden of Gethsemane with the temple guard, and they have this back and forth until a very angry Peter steps forward 
jumping back to John 8, 10. Uh, John's account says this, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So why the name at the end? It's because this is an important detail. It's important because Malchus was a real person. This interaction was a real interaction. These are real humans having a real interaction. It's a real event. This affected real people deeply. And John saw this. He, he records it just as he saw it happen because this really happened. When you give someone a play-by-play of something you saw, you usually give inconsequential detail. Oh, yeah, and, and Brian was there. Oh, yeah, and, and, and Derek was around too. You know, it's just like you just add in detail. John is saying, this is real. It really happened. And so uh, all, all of this is happening, and it's, 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 it's taking place, and Peter pulls the sword, right? He, he, he pulls this sword, and he does something that is just very Peter. And so Peter, he, he does something that I'm just, uh, I guess what I would call, I think Peter, at this point of the story, he might actually have been ready to die for Jesus in this moment. But it seems to me that Peter's willingness to do this, it had more to do with his ideas than it had to do with Jesus' ideas. Because as we have studied in this series, uh, again, if you've missed any week, go back and listen. We've, we've, we've studied this over and over. Peter, in this series, we have learned that he not only misinterprets and misunderstands Jesus often, but Peter also is motivated with his own agenda. Okay, Peter, he hates Rome, he wants to rebel, and, and he has desires to help lead a kingdom himself, and that's exactly the kind of thinking that is willing to kill for Jesus. But that's not the sort of thinking that is willing to die for Jesus. And so as I see it, Peter's faithfulness to Jesus is still built on many of his own desires to get his way in a kingdom that he thinks is going to look the way he thinks it should, and that he's willing to kill anyone who gets in the way of this kingdom. And so here's, here's the one point I have for you. There's a counterfeit faithfulness that I think is willing to kill for Jesus, but is not willing to die for Jesus. And, and I see that this happens today as well. I see this here within Peter, but I see it in our culture today. I think there are many people who will say that they follow Christ, they are a Christian, and they are ready to go to war with an opponent, whatever opponent that is. And, and we say it's for the kingdom of God. And, and my question just comes back to, is it really though? Because here is what Jesus has to say about Peter's intentions here. Jumping back now to Matthew 26, verse 52. Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? So at this point, in this moment, Jesus has come to terms with what must happen to him the suffering, the brutal death, and now Peter is trying 
if you will, to get in the way of it. I mean, Peter, how dare you attempt to take matters into your own hands? I have been telling you this will happen. This must happen. And you're still trying to do things your way. Luke's account of this actually says, Jesus picks up the ear and puts it back on Malchus. Jesus is healing and he's helping even those who are there to lead him to what will ultimately be his death. And so I think for a lot of us, we have this decision to make, this this inner struggle is, am I going to follow the way of Peter with brute force and, and enforce my will onto others? Or am I going to embrace the way of Jesus? Now, I know this was a very unique situation, and this had to happen so Jesus could suffer. But the way of Jesus is not the way of Peter. We've been in this, what, five or six weeks now, and we continue to see this. Now, after this takes place, the disciples flee in terror, but Peter and John, they don't completely run away as they follow the Bible tells us, from a safe distance. All the other disciples, they completely hide. They're gone. Uh, as Jesus is taken to the high priest's house for trial, an unfair trial, of course. Now, jumping back to Luke's account of the event, Luke 22, picking up verse 55. And when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, look at this, Peter sat down with them. And I'm not going to lie. I think this is actually really brave of Peter. I, th- I think it is. I think at this point, he could, he could certainly see Jesus. Maybe it's from here to the back of the room. I don't know. But he could see Jesus. Maybe not talk. Maybe, maybe not like share back and forth. But, but he, he wanted to see what's happening. And so here he is in the midst of everything. Peter's in the midst. He's surrounded by strangers and honestly, enemies alike. And he's close enough to see Jesus. He's close enough to get this, uh, to, to, to see him. And so get that visual in your mind, if you will, for just a moment, because this trial is taking place at the house of the high priest. And what was common then was that there was an opening toward the yard and how Peter can see into the house and how, we can, and how he can still see Jesus. Kind of like when you take your dog for a walk and you look and you see your neighbor's big window and you stop for a second because you're curious, what are they watching? You know, I'm not the only one. Don't act like I'm a weirdo, okay? You know, you, you can see, right? So Peter can see, I can see Jesus. Verse 56, a servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with them, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter, who is not thinking about what Jesus said to him hours earlier, is, is attempting to defend himself. He's, a, he's just trying to stay alive. I mean, think about it for a second. Peter is 
He's likely anxious. He's very combative. He's on edge. He's caught up in the moment of lying to save himself. He is mid-sentence when it's perfectly early enough in the night or the morning that a rooster would crow. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what happens. So Peter is there. He's among the crowd. Get this visual in your mind for a second. He can see Jesus through the opening of the high priest's home. And without saying a word, verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. No words. Jesus turned. No words were necessary. And he looks at Peter. Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. I mean, what, what Peter has to be feeling here, the shame and the fear, the, the embarrassment, the betrayal of his best friend, it all comes crashing down at once. And Jesus didn't have to say a word. I mean, Jesus, without communicating with Peter, likely all night, there's no account that they interacted after the sword incident, the ear incident. So Jesus, without communicating with Peter all night long after his arrest, but knowing Peter was still close. In this home, surrounded by his enemies, going through an unfair trial, Jesus Probably he can't hear Peter's three denials. They may be too far away for that. But what is loud enough to reach both men? The crow of a rooster. The sound of the rooster. Maybe it echoes through the courtyard. And it immediately snaps Peter out of his defenses. And if Jesus is standing or sitting on a table or something in the high priest's home, again, we don't know if Jesus heard the, heard the denials, but Jesus heard the rooster. And so even if Jesus is in the moment of the trial, Jesus hears the crow. And he knows where to look. And he doesn't have to say a word. And so in this moment, just, just, just get this in your, in, in, in your mind. Peter's eyes meet Jesus' eyes maybe for the first time since, since the sword. Peter sees Jesus, and I'm sure Jesus, his face is so disheartened. And Jesus sees Peter's completely guilty face, and Peter runs away. And he doesn't just run away. He, he completely deserts Jesus at this point. In fact, he doesn't just desert Jesus. He denied even knowing him in the first place. And now I don't have to tell you something you already know, but you know, here in the States, we're not actively being hunted down for following Jesus. We're not being threatened like Peter was likely being threatened. And so while we may not have the temptation of denying Jesus with our mouths like Peter, I do believe we are still tempted to deny Jesus with our actions and our inactions as well. So I know this story is obviously 
quite heavy. It's, it's, it's very, very dark, and, and we're just ending, you know, if you will, right here for today. But it's important to consider where we, where we are at in our walk with Jesus, in our faith, because denying Jesus, again, maybe not with our words, it's tempting. And maybe it comes out in action, but equally as important, in action. So some of our actions might be some denials, maybe more obvious than others. I mean, there are some sins that are pretty obvious, like greed, hatred, right? Those are clear and, and, and to be condemned. But, you know, I, I believe when we choose hatred, we actively deny the love of Christ, if you will. When we choose ourselves and our wants above others or their needs, then we are denying, if you will, love of Christ. Our actions matter because they reflect a heart that has either been transformed by the love of Jesus, or they haven't. Now, of course, we are not perfect. I'm not saying that this is the goal, to, to not fall short or anything like that. We simply will, and we do. Those things will happen. But the difference, the difference is our repentance. I think an accurate barometer of our faith is our response to our own sin. So just kind of reflect with this for a second. Sit with this for a moment. Are, are we prone to double down? Are we prone to be more secretive? Or are we humble and reflective and repentant? How is Jesus calling you forward today? Those actions reflect heart that is either transformed by the love of God or not. But then there are the, the inactions as well. And some of these are maybe more obvious than others. Some inactions as, as maybe we neglect the poor, as we maybe forget about the imprisoned, as maybe we sit on our hands as children suffer without parents or caring adults, or when we see injustice but we bend to the demands of our preferred ideology instead. This comes down to faithfulness and who or what we are faithful to. Uh, worship team, I want to bring you all back up as, as we wrap up. Just last little point, stay with me. Last point. This comes down to faithfulness because I think we will all be faithful to something. Peter, I believe, was faithful to his idea of the new kingdom that Jesus was bringing, Jesus was teaching. But it wasn't the kingdom Jesus was bringing. It was Peter's idea of it. And I believe Peter was faithful to his idea of Jesus. But church, listen, we are prone to doing the same. We are prone to the same thing. We are prone to being faithful to our idea of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we're faithful to the way of Jesus. And so what is your faithfulness built on? Is it the idea of Jesus? Or is it the way of Jesus? Those are to two totally different things. Because I don't want counterfeit faithfulness. 
I don't want to follow an idea of Jesus. I don't want to follow... I don't want to follow a Jesus with a blank before his name, right? Oh, he's, he's a this kind of Jesus or a that kind of Jesus. He's, and there are all sorts of interpretations that, that, that folks will, will make of Jesus. But I don't want that. I don't want a counterfeit faithfulness. I want to be faithful to the love and the mercy and the grace and the truth 